you will turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, we continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And this morning we will be in verses 7 through 12. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. And the title of our sermon is Hindered from Running. And our key words for our worshipers in training are run, hinder, and leaven. The Hakone Ikaiden Relay Marathon is one of the world's largest annual sporting events, and it happens every year in Japan. It is broadcast live on all of their national television stations, and more than a million people come from their homes to line the streets for this two-day event to cheer on all of the competitors. The race is two days, it covers 135 miles, and it's a relay that's split into uh, various legs. Now, each team has 10 men who compete in a portion of the overall race. In 2011, the end of the race was a dead heat to the finish amongst four strong competitors. With less than 200 meters left in the race, a determined Netsuki Taranda surged ahead of the pack, and he took the lead, and the finish line was just ahead of him. Unfortunately, he had grown so used to following the van that was in front of the pack that had the video camera mounted on it that he failed to notice that the van was pulling down a side road to get out of the way as to not drive through the finish line. And so instead of continuing straight ahead to win the race, Taranda took a right turn, following the van, costing him the first place victory. After two days and 135 miles, his team lost in the last 200 meters because of a wrong turn. After all of the training, all of the hard work, such a long-fought battle to get to that place, that moment, it was surely a devastating way to end the race. But you know, when you follow the wrong leader, when you get off course, you will always come up short in the end. As we've walked through the book of Galatians, we've seen the various ways that Paul has rebuked and corrected these believers in Galatia. He has has shocked their consciences at times. He has lovingly corrected them as a brother, sometimes as a father. He's reminded them of the truth of the gospel. He's shown them that the false teaching of the Judaizers that some of them were beginning to accept was was wrong and why it was wrong. And he showed them that it was damning, that it, it could cut them off from Christ altogether. And so we come to the text this morning. And it's as if Paul was was watching the Galatians in this marathon only to see them take a wrong turn. You were running well. Who has hindered you? He will ask them. But thankfully for the Galatians, it's not too late. 
And Paul uses this opportunity to, to try to get them back on track so they can run the race in the right direction. This morning we're looking again at verses 7 through 12 of Galatians 5. If you're using the blue ESV Bible in your seat back, you can find the text on page 974. The first thing Paul shows us is in verses 7 and 8. And that is that our motivations matter. Look with me in verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Now, as always, it is important for us to keep the issues in mind that Paul is dealing with. And specifically here, the false teaching of the Judaizers that he is countering. Remember, the Judaizers were telling the Galatians that Paul was wrong as he was preaching that they would be saved by grace through faith alone. They were saying, yes, have faith, that's fine, but your works are also necessary as a part of your salvation. Or else, as we discussed last time, you will have no motivation to obey. That was the Judaizer's argument. But I want us to notice right off the bat how Paul says this in verse 7. Notice he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Do you see? The difference between Paul and these false teachers was not that Paul was saying, well, now that you're saved and you're in Christ, you can commit adultery and lie. No, he didn't say that. Paul continued to affirm the truth of God's law. In fact, he would say, you mustn't do these things. But here's the thing, the Judaizers also said, you should not commit adultery and you should not lie. So what's the point? The point was not that, what, that one, one said it was okay and that one said nothing or, or one was holding to the law and the other one wasn't. They both said these things were not okay. But there was still a monumental difference. It comes down to motivation. Why should we obey God? Why should they not commit adultery or lie? And Paul says the reason for this, the the way that we answer this question means everything. The motivation is everything. The reason you obey God is everything. And first of all, he tells us the new, different motivation for obedience is crucial. And he shows us what that motivation is. He shows us how this new motivation works. It's pretty interesting how Paul says all of this too. Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? Well, wait a second. What did the Galatians assume they were doing? They were thinking that by following the Judaizers, they're becoming more obedient. They're about to undergo the most conscientious obedience to every single aspect of the moral law that they have ever encountered. And yet, Paul is now right in their face and he's saying to them, why aren't you obeying the truth? Why have you taken a wrong turn and gotten off the course from running the race? 
You see, Paul is narrowing in on the fact that you can do the right thing for the wrong reason and in doing so, actually walk in disobedience altogether. So for the Galatians, they might be obeying rules, but they're not obeying the truth. In fact, it's deliberate that Paul doesn't say law here. He says truth. You can obey rules all day long, but if your heart is filled with pride or anger, basically everything that is opposed to the fruit of the Spirit, then it's disobedience regardless of what you do. But with Paul, it goes a step further. If you think obeying God's law is going to earn you favor with God, what you're actually doing is disobeying the law you think you're following. You're not using it properly. You don't understand what it is or what it's for. Perhaps you've met a person before who tells you that they're a red-letter Christian. In other words, they're saying the Bible on the whole doesn't mean a whole lot to them, but they just try to live by the red letters. And those are supposed to be the words of Jesus. So there is a lot wrong with that, not the least of which is that the entire Bible are the words of Jesus. But here's what they're saying essentially. I live only by what Jesus says. I don't know about the salvation stuff. I don't know about doctrine. I don't know about atonement and all that. I just know that Jesus tells me to live by the golden rule and to live by the two great commandments. Really. So what you're saying is you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength. You love your neighbor as yourself, and you do unto others as you want done unto you. Well, do you know that the two great commandments and the golden rule are actually commanding you to do something while simultaneously telling you another bit of key information that you seem to be missing completely? You cannot do it. Nobody does it. Nobody comes close to doing it. And actually, if, if you listen to the law of God, you will learn very quickly that it is telling you this over and over and over again. The law is right. The law is just. The law is telling you what you must do, and you'll never, ever do it. Which means that anyone who says, I'm a red-letter Christian, or I'm a golden rule kind of person. I just do what Jesus said. They're, They're not doing anything Jesus said because they're actually not relying on Jesus at all. But putting themselves and their supposed ability to live up to his moral demands. The golden rule, the law of God in general does not just tell you how to live. It leads you to seek a Savior. Every aspect of the law of God, if you are really listening to it, is telling you, here is what God requires. And if you cannot do what God requires, you are condemned already. 
You need someone to fulfill the law on your behalf so that you might live. There are no such thing as those who live obediently to the golden rule, who live obediently to the two great commandments without Christ. So if your motivation is, I will obey the law of God, I will obey the red letters of the Bible, I'm a good person. You're not listening to what the scriptures have to say. You're not hearing the law you claim to believe and follow. This was the false idea that Jesus exposed over and over and over again with people that were continually coming to saying, good teacher, I follow the law. Good teacher, I am a good person. And he turns it all on, he's, all on its head and he says, the very thing you think you're obeying and the very thing you think you're doing, you're actually not obeying or doing. And then he questions them. You, you don't believe me? Okay. Yes, God's law says do not murder. You've never murdered anyone? Congratulations. But you want to know what else? That also means you cannot have any hatred whatsoever in your heart for anyone at any time. How are you doing with that? The law says do not commit adultery. You've never committed adultery? Fantastic. But do you know the law also means that you cannot lust after another person in your heart ever? How's that going for you? So you see, anyone who thinks they're actually going to obey the law, and in obeying the law, they're going to gain favor with God, they're right where the Galatians are. They're hindered from obeying. Not the law, but the truth. The truth that they will never be able to do what they think they can do because they're seeking to do it apart from Christ. So you see, our motivation is everything. And there's something to this that sometimes non-believers have a very difficult time understanding. In fact, they really can't understand it, and it's this. It's when people like many of you, perhaps you've lived a rather moral life. You've done and said the supposed right things. You haven't gone to jail. You haven't been in trouble. You just go about your business day by day, working hard, doing what you're expected to do, not interfering with other people's lives. And in the eyes of the world, they would say, they're a pretty good person. But one day, the Lord saves you. And he makes you a new creation in Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the same people who have thought you to be a good person hear you saying things like, I was very hateful, and I was judgmental, and I was spiteful, and I was a vengeful person. But then the Lord saved me, and my heart was changed, and I am filled with love, and I am terribly broken over my sins. I used to live life for myself, and I was a people pleaser so that I could be liked, and, and I was very prideful about what I was able to do and what I was able to accomplish. But now I've become a Christian. I'm completely different. But here's the thing. In all, in all likelihood... Those who are not walking with Christ can look at your life externally and maybe not understand because they don't know what's gone on in your heart. 
They've never experienced it. And if you're already living an externally moral life, they don't see all that much of a difference. I may be doing, you see, the very same things. But this time, the motivation is completely different. I've become a Christian. The reason for why we do what we do is crucial. It's life and death important. If your motivation is wrong, it may very well be an indication that you've been hindered from obeying the truth. And Paul says here in verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. This persuasion to forsake the path that has been laid down before you and instead follow a path of works, this is not from him who called you. This is from those elemental spirits of the universe who are the non-gods. You remember that from chapter 4. You are bewitched. You are deceived. You have swerved off the narrow path and have entered the broad road that leads to destruction like a marathon runner who takes the wrong turn and loses the race. You were running well. You shot out of the blocks. You had the lead. You were relying on the Spirit. You were showing uh, that you were relying upon Him for every step and for all of the guidance and power that He provides, but you've made a new turn, and that new turn runs completely contrary to what God has revealed. Why are you doing what you are doing? What is your motivation? Who is persuading you? Friends, some of you here today may have this notion that you are a good person or that you do good things, you do right things, and in the end, that's good enough. God will weigh your good deeds against your bad deeds and he will see your good deeds were good and he will forgive you and welcome you into everlasting paradise with him as a result. The scriptures are infinitely clear. No one does good. No, not even one. No one seeks after God. No one lives according to the standard that God has given. Because God has said in his word, be perfect because I am perfect. It is a command. And all of his law is designed to show us that by his command, we cannot do what he has called us to do. But Jesus Christ has. And by his grace and by his mercy, he calls us to recognize who we are and what we are unable to do and who we are unable to be in our own strength and to put all of our faith and all of our hope and all of our trust and find our greatest treasure in Jesus Christ alone, that our hearts would be changed and we would be made new creations that we can walk with him forever and ever, not depending on myself, not depending on my works and my own supposed self-righteousness, but depending on a righteousness that I cannot provide a righteousness that only the one who was perfect could provide and give to me by his death and for his glory. And as I walk with Christ, he continues day by day to make me more able to walk in accordance with his word. But it is not until he gives me a new heart 
And that new heart leads me to faith and repentance that I might trust in him all the days of my life and be assured that while I will continue to sin in this life, while I may take my eyes off the prize and look down a wrong path that the Lord by his grace will send a Paul into my life and by his word steer me on again to the right path that I will continue to run the race and seek the prize of an imperishable wreath that will be mine forever and ever. Friends, if you do not know Christ, I commend him to you this morning that you would repent and believe on him. Our motivations matter. Why we do what we do is the difference between living forever or enduring condemnation forever. And this gets to another important point that Paul leads right into in verses 9 and 10. And that is that God is concerned about whom and in what we believe. Look at verses 9 and 10 with me. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Now, leaven, as you know, is a piece of fermented dough, and sometimes it would be left behind after a previous baking. And so if that leaven, even a very small bit, was added to new dough where they were seeking to make unleavened bread, it very quickly permeates the entire lump of dough, and the unleavened bread has now become leavened. And Paul is making a comparison between the effects of the leaven in the lump of dough with the effects of this false teaching of the Judaizers. Even though not everyone in the Galatian church has necessarily bought into the false teaching, unless it was vigorously and immediately removed in time, it would be very destructive to the entire church. One commentator wrote, not only are Christian views to be maintained, but other views are to be vigorously opposed. Charles Spurgeon once said, error spreads like leaven. Error races around the world by the time truth gets its boots on. Brothers and sisters, we cannot doubt the fact that sound belief is crucial to sound faith. God is very concerned about what we believe and why we believe it. Now, depending on what the particular issue is, there are certain truths that are more important than others. And yet, God has given us all that is necessary that even a child can understand what it means to walk in truth by his word with Jesus Christ. And so we should be striving, though, as the people of God, to know what is true and to believe what is true and to live according to what is true with the help of the Holy Spirit. And the scriptures bear witness to the fact that we must not only believe what is true, but we also have to reject what is false. There are some things that we may believe wrongly. And it not have long-lasting, devastating effects on our journey with the Lord. However, there are other things that we can believe wrongly 
And they actually be an indication that we were never truly saved in the first place. This is implied in what Paul writes in verse 10. He seems rather confident that as soon as he was able to show them and convince them that the Judaizers had gone wrong in their teaching, that they would do what was needed to get back to running the race on the proper course. He had seen the work of God in their lives already when he first planted the church there. He, he knows who they were in their former ways. He has, he has seen who they have become after they were born again. So he could not continue uh, to see them running in error. And it wasn't as though they could lose their salvation. It wasn't, it wasn't possible. But he wanted to assure them that if they continued in error, it was the reality being revealed that they never walked with Christ in the first place. But likewise, if they are walking with Christ, that they will reject what is false. So Paul was sure that they wouldn't be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus, even though they might wander off in confusion occasionally. This is very informative for us. And we need to be very careful here as well. Sometimes we can get a little bit puffed up. We can get a bit prideful about what we believe and how we articulate it in a way that leads us sometimes to assume that perhaps if other professing believers don't believe or understand certain things in the way that we do, they must not be Christians at all. Now, to be certain, sometimes that is true. Matters like justification by faith strike directly at the heart of what it means to be a Christian and to understand and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no waffling on matters like that. However, there are other matters that while it may give a person a lopsided faith, it may give them a faith that is not robust or very useful to them in terms of having assurance or hope or ongoing communion with God, it doesn't mean that they aren't Christians. Now, every believer should be, ought to be concerned about eliminating error and walking in truth. And a true believer will have the desire to do so. But there are faithful, godly Christians in our world who don't hold to specific truths or don't articulate things in the same manner as us, and yet they are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. And many of those things are issues that not only should they not be issues that we assume exclude them from the kingdom of God, they shouldn't even be issues that exclude them from us working together with them. Or even be issues that keep us from worshiping together in the same church. If you and I don't agree on certain things, we can work through that. You are entitled to be wrong from time to time. (laughs) I have been before. I was young once. (laughs) But we need to be patient with one another. We need to work together to be sharpened by one another. And not, not not just writing each other off because we have differences. And Paul displays that very well here. 
I can imagine the temptation would be so easy for him to look at the situation with the churches in Galatia and just write them off and be done with it. They've rejected him, they've rejected his teaching, and they've gone down a road that is a complete denial of the true gospel, and yet he still labors to turn them to the proper path and see that they are restored to him and to the truth that they have begun to disobey. And as we grow in Christian faith, we need to remember that God didn't change all of our thinking and didn't give us bulletproof doctrine overnight. It takes time. We need to have a long-term view of what God will do in his people, knowing that sometimes we and others will veer off a path here or there and need to be corrected and not just written off. My favorite living theologian, Sinclair Ferguson, was writing about the idea that, that some of the more old school men in his tradition are getting frustrated with some of the newer men because they don't get it all together instantaneously. And he responded to all of his brothers in his generation, and he said, I thought you believed in the sovereignty of God and learn to be patient with people. That is the heart that we must have. If God is sovereign and God is patient, we must trust in his sovereignty and reflect his patience. And we must walk together with those who claim to be in Christ, knowing that in time it will all be revealed. However, I say all of this But I have to be very clear that while Paul is very optimistic about the Galatians, he did not share the same optimism for the Judaizers. They were guilty of leading God's children astray. And if they fail to repent, they face a judgment Jesus likened to being tied to a millstone and hurled into the sea. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicion. He goes on in 2 Timothy chapter 1 to talk about the gospel as the standard of sound words and the treasure with which we have been entrusted and which we are to guard. Jude 3 teaches us to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So you see, our doctrine is very important. And some doctrine is so important that it is the difference between Truly being in the faith and not being in the faith at all. God does care about who we follow and what we believe. He is concerned that we know Christ personally and that we have a right understanding about who Christ is and what Christ has done. So there's no room to just brush doctrine and pursuit of the understanding of the word of God away by saying it's not important, it's not worth our time, it's not worth our effort because it's difficult or because it's divisive or because it's not essential for salvation. There is no room in the Christian faith for willful, casual ignorance or, far worse, for casual error. 
what we believe truly does matter. Remember, in chapter 1, Paul said that those who teach another or a different gospel preach no gospel at all, and they are anathema. They're cursed. They're cut off. So you see, we must know the difference between something that is essential to be in Christ and other things that may be true but are non-essential if one is to be saved. And in the essentials... We must walk faithfully, unwaveringly, and proclaim far and wide that this is true and there is no moving from truth. And for those things that are non-essential, we still want to hold tenaciously to the truth. But we can be patient with others who are walking with Christ. We can help them to see from the scriptures and hopefully in time that their minds would be changed, and that we ourselves would be open to being corrected and changed as well. You know, like so many things in the Christian life, there is a beautiful balance of paradox here. Our salvation involves a personal commitment to and a relationship with Jesus Christ, but it also involves a commitment to a body of truth, to biblical teaching regarding God and man and sin and Christ and salvation and the Christian life and many other things. So don't be trapped into thinking that a commitment to Christ without doctrine is acceptable or even possible. It's not an either-or issue. It is a both-and issue. Likewise, we cannot simply proclaim truth without refuting error. There are times, now albeit with the rise of social media, probably fewer times than we sometimes do, but there are times when it is important to confront error and to reject it and correct it. Christ calls us to trust in him, but in doing so, to believe certain things about him, and to reject those things that run contrary to the plainly revealed truth of the Bible. Now, Paul actually refutes a false teaching in verse 11, and he deals with the implications of what he's being accused of, and he makes our third point this morning, which is that removing the offense of the cross may save us from persecution, but it will not save us for eternity. Look with me at verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now remember, one of the primary issues for the Judaizers was circumcision. They were insisting on the Galatians going through with circumcision so that they could be conformed to the mandates of the Mosaic law. And they were, it appears by this verse, suggesting that Paul also preached circumcision as necessary for salvation. And he addresses it as a matter which sort of goes to say, it is so absurd that it is hardly worth responding to. In other words, he doesn't really deal with how they came to the conclusion that he might be saying that or might have misunderstood anything along those lines. He simply cuts to the chase. And he counters their charge with pure logic. In effect, he's saying, if I'm preaching what they're preaching, that circumcision is necessary for salvation, tell me, why are they still persecuting me? It doesn't make sense, right? Why not? 
Because Paul is teaching and preaching the gospel of grace. And it cannot be adulterated with works righteousness. You cannot preach that one is saved by grace through faith apart from works of the law while simultaneously claiming that circumcision is necessary for salvation. That makes the cross of Christ unnecessary because it implies that by doing good works, one could actually be saved. It's an absurd allegation, and Paul will have none of it. The stumbling block of the cross, which causes opposition and offense, is the message that we are sinners. And apart from trusting in Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished on behalf of his people for our salvation, no one can be saved. If Paul had preached the cross plus circumcision, the offense would be removed. He would have been free from persecution. But what's the implication of that? What happens if the offense is removed and persecution ceases? The gospel is nullified. There is no possible way the Judaizer's formula of faith plus works as a way of salvation can coexist with the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ and his works and his righteousness apart from ours 100% or it's not the gospel. So to add our works to the cross is to destroy the gospel. To preach the gospel of grace is to exclude the possibility of even a single ounce of salvation being because of our works. And so the cross becomes a stumbling block to legalists because it destroys any opportunity for them to rely on their human merit to earn favor with God. But Paul isn't finished going after the Judaizers. And in fact, he addresses them in a somewhat, I might say, uncomfortable and highly sarcastic statement that might make all of us blush a little bit. So be prepared. (laughs) I I don't think Paul had in mind when he was writing this that one day some poor guy is going to have to stand behind a pulpit and preach this when he wrote it. But he wrote it, so here we go. In our final verse this morning, we see that no form of works will earn us favor from God. Look at verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, if it does not strike you right away as to what he's saying, here it is in another English translation that is a bit more to the point. I wish that the ones who are disturbing you would also castrate themselves. In other words, these false teachers are telling you to follow through with circumcision, but if they're so holy and if they're so righteous by their works, why stop at circumcision? Why not just go the whole way and cut everything off? Now remember, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words. But why? Why is he using such strong language here? Remember again, I mentioned back in chapter 4, Paul was dealing with the bewitching of the Galatians by supernatural forces that were evil and enslaving. Many pagan religious cults in Paul's day actually practiced castration as a part of their worship rites. They believed that radical mutilation of the body, and I assure you that is radical, earned favor with their gods. Now, Paul obviously knew that God forbade such practices. He says so in his word. 
He had only given circumcision as a sign of being in covenant relationship with God's people, not as an act of works to earn salvation. But the Judaizers were seeking salvation, not by faith, but as though it were by works. So if it's going to be by works, why not go varsity? Why not go to the big leagues like the pagans and show how spiritual you really are? It is shocking. But it goes to show the seriousness of what Paul is addressing and how he's addressing it. He aligns their practices with the pagans. Why? Because both practices were rooted in works righteousness. Both of them led away from the truth of the gospel. The Galatian detour down the wrong road was bound to take them right into the bondage from which they had already been freed. So Paul's sarcastic outburst, although directed primarily at the Judaizers, was an appeal to his brothers to wise up, to not be enslaved once again to the powers and principalities of the world. Now listen, nearly every single week as we've walked through Galatians, we see some kind of principle regarding the gospel and works. But it is so important It is so contrary to how we think and operate in every other area of life. We don't just need this reminder every week. We need it every day. You in and of yourself are not and cannot be good enough for God. There's nothing you can do. There's no way you can do it that will earn favor with him so that you can be saved. No matter how radical it is. You can go to ultimate extremes with your works, but they will end up meaning nothing in terms of your salvation. You are not saved by your church attendance, your Bible reading, your Sunday school teaching, your homeless feeding, your sidewalk counseling outside the abortion mill, or your evangelism, or your tithing. Every single one of these things is good and right and necessary, and the church must pursue them. But if your motivation in all of these is to earn favor with God, that he would accept you based on these efforts, you are not living in accordance with the gospel. We have a great hymn that we sing called, Come Ye Sinners. A few of the words say, Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. You didn't conjure it up. You didn't make it happen through your efforts. It's a gift from God. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, but sinners Jesus came to call. Some of you may be thinking, I want to be right with God, but I need to clean up my life first. I need to get a few things straightened out. I need to get rid of a few bad habits. I need to square away a few areas that are messed up, and then I will go to Christ. Friends, you're not getting it. You cannot and you will not clean up your life apart from Christ. You will not get things straightened up apart from Christ. Only he can do what is necessary to change you because it's not a work that can be done. It is a grace that is to be received. The song says, none but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Stop depending on yourself. Start looking to Christ alone. No one but he can do you any good. Let's run the race by following Christ. The one who's purchased us by blood, the one who has set us free 
from the enslaving bondage to the law that we might have true life with him. May we be rightly motivated to please God for his glory, seeking to know and apply his truth to our lives, standing firmly upon all that was once and all for delivered for the saints. Christ is all we need. The less there is of us, the more there is of him. And the better we can and will run the race. Keep running. Keep plotting. Keep following the one who will never lead us astray. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the reminders of your word that reveal to us on the grand marquee that there is nothing that we can do in our lives to earn your favor or our salvation. And it is only in Christ that we will find hope, that we will find true faith, and that we will find any right motivation for obedience to the truth. And so I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts to remove all forms of self-righteousness, to remove all forms of motivation that are based upon works to earn something. And that the works that we do, the good works that you have ordained for us to do, would be motivated by a desire to bring you glory, to please you as a people who are thankfully doing all that we do from the overflow of our hearts because Christ has made us to be new creations in him. May our motivation be the glory of God and not ourselves. I pray for any who are here this morning who do not trust in Christ, that the Holy Spirit would pause over their grave and bring them to new life in Jesus. I pray you would do that for your glory and for their everlasting good. And we ask it all in Jesus' name.